Thank you all for coming. Um, this is a very special program for us today. Um, it's the 40th anniversary of the historic 1982 Chinatown Garment Workers Strike. And my friends and comrades, May Chen and Rachel Brinson, have been doing programs all over town since the spring to commemorate it, including a big reunion in the park with former gar with garment workers. Um, and today we're doing an intergenerational or generational program. Um, so it's really excited and I'm, I'm very pleased that um, we could have people here today. So um, my name is May Nye. I'm the co-director of the Center for the Study of Ethnicity and Race here at Columbia and a professor of history. Um, and it's my great pleasure to moderate today's program. So we're going to start uh, and later end with a musical performance um, by Tayo Na and Treya Lam called We Belong. Let me just introduce them very briefly to you. Uh, Tayo Na is a writer, educator, and musician uh, in New York, living on unceded Lenape Canarsie land in Queens. He's been working for two decades in cultural and pedagogical work in urban communities. Uh, he's a short film, music video, uh, to his 2008 song, Lovely to Me, Immigrant Mother. Um, and he's also the author of uh, the 2010-2011 collaboration album, Home, Word with Magnetic North, um, that included a number of chart-topping songs in Asia. Uh, Treya Lam is an American multi-instrumentalist and songwriters and songwriter um, their debut album, Good News, was released via Khaki King's label, um, and he's current, they are currently developing Otherland, an audiovisual chamber folk album. Uh, Lamb is an active member of the Resistance Revival Chorus, and their song Dawn, which we will hear later this evening, uh, is featured on their debut album, This Joy. And they're going to be debuting at Lincoln Center uh, later next spring. So I just want to say that it's really exciting for me to have um, Tayo and Treya with us because I'm an OG. <laughs> so the people we have featured today who are the children of the garment workers from the strike era and a lot of our students here at Columbia um, I think uh, would really appreciate the, this generation's uh, cultural workers and their contributions. And it's great to see these connections being made uh, through their family memories and through their artwork today. So please welcome Tayo Na and Treya Lam performing We Belong. Thank you for having us, especially May, um, and including, including culture as part of this uh, labor um, historical moment um, and uh, we assume that since you are labor historian history lovers that you'd be willing to sing um, <laughs> we know that uh, songs were a critical part of uh, labor movements so um, and uh, it'd be wonderful to hear more about you know the, the songs that they sang the Chinese mother sang in, in this in this strike in particular in 82 um, but we're going to sing our own uh, labor, social movement-based songs. Uh, this particular song that, that uh, we're singing is called We Belong. It's uh, been written 
um, by Chris Ajima, who is the Asian American movement uh, troubadour, um, and uh, reinterpreted by, by me and us. Um, all right. Decades. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, I checked Tayo out, uh, their video, the rap video, so that's also um, I recommend to you. So we'll hear more from them later. Um, so now I want to ask uh, our speakers to come to the stage uh, Vivian Louie, Amy Chin, and Donald Kwan. 
So um, let me just introduce them to you. I think this is a fabulous idea to have uh, young adults um, who grew up in garment <laughs> worker. You're all younger than me. So. <laughs> but um, to think about what it was like to grow up in Chinatown you know, in the 70s and 80s, um, and uh, in, in a time when Chinatown was really changing, right? Um, uh, and I think that the strike itself was the seminal moment, but it was a, um, a kind of culmination of a couple of decades of transformation in Chinatown, right? Where Chinatown transitioned from being a community of uh, largely of sojourners, solo men, um, who not necessarily unmarried. A lot of them had families and, and wives and families in China, but were sojourners here in the sense that they um, didn't have families here. And then after World War II, the immigration began to open up a little bit, and then especially after 1965, it opened up even more. So Chinatown really changed with women and children and families in this space that had historically been a very closed off um, and marginalized community of, of immigrant men. So the, um, you know, the, the strike, I think, culminated a certain moment of women's uh, labor and activism in Chinatown. Um, I think that, you know, they, it was a culmination of people like Mei Chen working in the union Right itself um, may not single-handedly, but of course there was a, also a generation of activists who were organizing in Chinatown, whether in social service agencies or housing housing advocacy, or in the labor unions. And I think this was a really a moment of uh, a transformation because it was also an intergenerational uh, project. So I'm going to introduce our speakers um, briefly, and then. I'll have some questions for you all, and we'll have a conversation about what it was like to grow up in a family in Chinatown engaged in the garment business. So uh, Vivian Louie, uh, in the middle, is a professor of urban policy and planning and the director of Asian American Studies Center and program at Hunter uh, of CUNY. She studies um, American identity, civic participation, and civic education, um, and especially in terms of education and workplace Issues. She's author of several books, including Compelled to Excel, Immigration, Education, and Opportunity Among Chinese Americans, and Keeping the Immigrant Bargain, The Costs and Rewards of Success in America. Uh, Amy Chin is um, an assistant professor of American Studies and Asian Studies at Vassar College. She received her PhD in sociology at Brown University um, and her undergraduate degree at Cornell's School of Industrial Labor Relations. Um, her research examines the effects of military service in U.S. wars in Asia and the Pacific and on the relationships between Asian American women and their veteran fathers. And Donald Kwan uh, is a universal pre-K teacher at the Garmin Industry Daycare Center of the Chinatown Planning Council located in Chinatown. Um, he grew up in Chinatown, uh, and we'll hear more about that later. Um, and he uh, actually attended the 
daycare center when he was a child, and now he's a teacher in the garment daycare center. Uh, Donald received his BA from uh, Hunter and his uh, master's degree at uh, City College in general ed and special ed. So please welcome our guests, and I'm going to moderate a conversation. So first, maybe um, you can each share in turn um, what it was like growing up in Chinatown in the in the 70s, right? 70s and 80s. What was it like? So hi, everyone. I'm Vivian. Thank you so much for the invitation. Um, and it's wonderful to be on this panel and so great to, to see folks I haven't seen in so long, um, like May. Um, so yeah, I was actually born in Manhattan's Chinatown. Uh, I was born in Manhattan's Chinatown when there were concerns uh, that Chinatown would die out not only in Manhattan, but across the country, because um, even though the Immigration Act of 1965 had been passed, it took a couple years for it to actually right, bring large-scale. Yeah, absolutely. And then um, we moved to Eastern Queens when I was a toddler, uh, but because my mother uh, worked in the garment industry for more than 40 years, in addition to other labor that she did uh, in Manhattan's Chinatown, um, we did the back and forth. And also because my grandparents and a lot of relatives, my step-great-grandmother, stayed in Chinatown. Uh, so what do you mean by the back and forth? So the back and forth is basically, uh, you know, my mom worked six days a week, and she had one day off. And on that day off, we would go to Chinatown because there was no flushing back then, right? Uh, there was no Sunset Park. And we would go there so we could, you know, she could get groceries at the local butcher that she knew, at the local grocery store, and then, of course, that we could see um, our relatives, Right. Um, so was she a garment worker? Yes. So she was working not in Chinatown, though. So can you explain how that, that part of the back and forth? Sure, she was. For a number of years, she was in a Chinatown mm -hmm. garment factory. Uh, and then later in her career, it was in Midtown mm -hmm. because the factory had moved there. Um, and I guess I should say that, uh, you know, the garment factory was my first daycare because there was no daycare, I write. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm portraying my age in many different ways. <laughs> and so, um, and there was no place to put me. So I basically stayed in the garment factory, and she could keep an eye out on me, and then we would go home together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Donald, both your parents worked in a garment factory. That's a little unusual because mostly we think of the garment workers as being women. So can you talk a little bit about what it was like for both your parents to be garment workers? Well, uh, unlike uh, Vivian, I grew up in the 80s where there was daycare, actually. Um, I was one of the few uh, first students in uh, the garment daycare. So uh, in that point, uh, my parents had more time to focus on working. Uh, but it, it's very tough just because... Um, uh, quite frankly, working in the garment district, um, they were paid per job. For every piece of uh, fabric they sold or depressed, that's what they get paid for, pennies and nickels. And at point, at one point, um, it was just tough uh, because um, demand was high and um, they needed the money, so uh, at 
certain points of the year, when there were a lot of demands, um, my mom would stay over at the factory and work overnight, oh, or wow. my dad would stay over. And uh, one of the parents stayed home and just took care of us overnight. And this happened quite often. And my parents actually worked seven days a week most of the time. And my sole caretaker was my sis, my older sister. But she wasn't that much older, right? Uh, a few years. years. So did your parents work in the same shop or did they work in different shops? Um, from my understanding, most of the time they worked in different shops mm -hmm. until um, a little bit older when uh, most of the garment factories were moved out of Chinatown. Um, from my understanding, in the early 90s, they moved up to Midtown. And then towards the late 90s, they moved to Brooklyn, Sunset Park area. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and the uh, family was still living in Chinatown? Yes. So then they had to commute out? They had to commute right. uptown, or they had to commute down, down to Brooklyn. Right. And um, the, the commute it was different by then, and there was less jobs by then already, so they weren't working as hard. And by that time, they were working six days a week, and they weren't staying overnight in the factories. Wow. So, so it was a big wow. difference between the 80s, early 90s, to, to mid and late 90s in terms of uh, the supply of jobs that was available. I want to come back to this working overnight in a minute, but I want to give Amy a chance to talk about her family. Great. Hi, everyone. Um, thank you for coming. And I guess this is more of a talk story situation. Mm -hmm. um, so I grew up in Queens, and my grandmother was in the union. Um, and then my my mother was also uh, a garment worker, but she came in the um, mid-1980s, so um, a, a slightly different union. Um, and yeah, uh, she commuted back and forth into Chinatown um, to uh, work in the factory. And it was really my grandmother who raised me. Um, but when I think about it, she could only kind of have that extended care work because my grandmother could retire um, comfortably because of the union she was in. Um, and I think what was interesting was that there was this kind of outer borough garment worker community as well. Um, when I was growing up, I, I had, I wasn't the best student actually, and I had a, a tutor and it was really um, my, my grandmother kind of <laughs> Um, outside seeing this woman walk the dog and she's like can you help me she's like what do you need what do you need and she's like oh um can you help like tutor my granddaughter um and she said yes but i later found out that she was the daughter of an italian um garment worker and so they all kind of knew each other before i i was too young to understand that this kind of network existed um and so yeah uh there were just a lot of um, Chinese, Chinese-American women living in Queens at the time, and I kind of knew them as um, family friends, or, you know, they all, I guess, migrated together at the same time, but really they were co-workers. And they, um, maybe they didn't see it that way, but, you know, it, it was all these interactions in the factory that created this, um, like, this social space, and it bled into, um, social life outside of the Chinatown. So, yeah, that's kind of what's happening. So what I'm finding really interesting about your stories is that although Donald's family stayed in Chinatown, your families moved out of Chinatown, but they followed the industry, right, regardless of where the industry was moving. 
And so this is another side of Chinatown's transformation in the latter decades of the 20th century with what we all know, gentrification, right? Where there's a lot of um, banks moved into Chinatown. I remember when all the jewelry stores showed up in Chinatown, the rents really went up, and slowly but surely, people um, were edged out of affordable housing, and then with more immigrants coming, there was greater demand for housing and less, fewer and fewer apartments. So this is a, a kind of dynamic that I, I think is really interesting where we think of Chinatown as being the center of both where people live and work, and yet it's a little more complicated than that. So Donna, can we just go back to like your parents working overnight as, as, as a kind of common occurrence? Um, and that was when like a job had to be finished at work or during a certain season. Uh, I was not aware of people having to work overnight. So, so it, it wasn't, it wasn't a, a, a mandated up. It was more optional. Mm -hmm. And um, most of the jobs were done overnight because there, there was a supply into it. And a lot of women would work overnight just to uh, get some extra money, in fact. So they stay overnight and um, they would just get extra money. Um, the pay was the same, but you get more jobs doing that. So at that point, my mom stayed overnight, or she worked at 12, 1 a.m. I wasn't even sure because I, I was young. You were sleeping, right? I was probably sleeping. And that, that amount of extra cash allowed uh, my family to save us some money. Right. And um, So it, did any of your mothers have um, sewing machines at home, the industrial machines, and bring work home to do? Um, certain times, yes, my mom would bring work home to do, but... Um, it's easier to work in the, off, uh, in the factory just because mm. you get a lot more materials there. You get a lot more jobs in the factory compared to you working at home. Um, sometimes in the weekends, uh, my mom would bring work home to do, but it's just hard because you have to carry all the fabric up four flights of stairs. There's no elevation in Chinatown. So uh, it's just right, tough. Right, right. And Vivian and Amy, did you grow up in apartments where people were sewing clothes on weekends or at night, your moms or your grandmoms? Um, not really. Okay. I think it's really interesting the the experience because my my family, in many ways, kind of sheltered me from um, their garment work, um, hmm. and uh, I I've never visited a, um, a garment factory in my entire life. I've only known about it through. Oh, so you weren't abstract. in daycare, like? Yeah, no, was. no. It was completely. Um, I think the distance, but um, I think, uh, yeah, it was just, I was trying to recall the ways garment work showed up in my um, childhood, and my, all I remember was kind of my mom having really long nails, um, which it, I was like, wow, mom, why do you have so much long nails? She's like, to pick up the, the, oh, um, the threads, this, uh, uh, the, the cloth easier, mm -hmm. um, and I, um, I teach an, uh, an oral history class at Vassar, and um, I have some students whose mothers were also garment workers. And everyone is told this, but um, they tell their kids, I was the fastest. <laughs> I was the fastest. Right, and right. So Everybody like, was the everyone fastest. Everyone was the fastest. Everybody was the fastest, um, right. But yeah, I was, pretty, I was pretty much, you know, um, other than, you know, helping my mother do ta her taxes and seeing the W-2s and the names of the, um, uh, the factory, I think growing up I didn't even know, you know, 
um, when you're a kid, they ask you what your parents do, and I didn't know what to say. Was she a tailor? Was she a seamstress? Was she a sweatshop worker? You know, I, I, I wasn't sure, and so I think it was just really interesting how um, so, like, separated from it, yeah. Well, 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 it's a little different because my family did own a, a factory at one point. Uh, it was a failed business, of course, uh, after a couple of years. So um, I actually basically grew up in the factory. Um, uh, I've seen the people press. My dad was actually a presser, so he pressed the fabric. I've seen the old ladies um, trim, trim the threads. I actually trimmed threads myself when I was younger. We thought it was a game. And uh, I wouldn't say I, I would stay in the factory for a very long time because my parents didn't like me staying in the factory. It, there is a lot of hazards, but uh, I stayed there for a little bit. Um, and growing up, you see a lot of different things, and you see a lot. Of, no, you see, you see things happen. I've seen accidents happen to uh, the 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 person who sews the button into uh, the, into the, their hand. Yeah, the finger. So, yeah, yeah, I've seen that happen. Uh, I've seen many different accidents, and it's just a hazard sometimes for kids to be in the factory. And the adults just have to be very careful because there's nails on the floor, there's cloth everywhere, and it's. A lot of times it's not clean and you don't see the, what's on the floor. Everything drops into the floor. Um, so everything's not sewed on. Sometimes uh, it's sewed on and cut at the same time and everything just gets dropped into the floor. So this is amazing because in American history, the whole question of so-called child labor, of children working in factories, um, you know, at the age of 10 or 12, this is something from the 19th century. <laughs> Right, and in the early 20th century, um, reformers tried to put an end to child labor, and it actually took a lot of organizing to pass laws uh, against the use of child labor. And yet, still in Chinatown or in the Chinese garment factories, well into the late 20th century, um, we still have this problem. So the daycare center then is huge, right? That the that CPC has this daycare center because it means that the children of garment workers. Or don't have to be in the factory right, uh, where their yeah, parents it, are working. It, it, at least it, com it limited um, at least a hundred different students mm -hmm. to uh, not stay in the, uh, the garment factories. It allowed students to learn because a lot of these students, a lot of these kids weren't learning, and they were just there running around. And I wouldn't say they're working, but they're exposed to all these hazards. There's a lot of needles there. There's a lot of scissors there, and right, they right. run around. So this um, daycare center was um, a project or a jointly sponsored by the union and the industry, right? It's a joint, is it? it, it from my understanding, it was a joint project between the union and um, the garment industry and um, CPC. And CPC. Um, and they organized it and people that were first only allowed into that daycare if they were part of the union. Right. Um, and it was like that for many years, and it's all lottery picked, so there's no favoritism. Uh, and it oh, so there's a big demand that can't be met, right? Yes, by there the was number. always a demand that right. can't be met until uh, our last garment working union member uh, was a couple years back, and there's no more. There's I no see. more garment working uh, students anymore. So let's talk a little bit about the union, right? Because it was. Even though it's a joint project, it was really the initiative of the union, uh, and and it's in some ways, I don't know, is it a product of the strike? Is it a result of the strike? Um, so let's talk about 
what it was like for you, you all growing up in a, not just a garment worker family, but a union household, because Chinatown is not a, known as a union community, but the, the ILGWU really made it into a kind of union community because the majority of women uh, who are workers are in, were, were at least, you know, in this period, in union shops. So what kind of difference did it make in your, your, your mother's or your parents' thinking or their attitudes? How did being in a union shape their view of what it meant to be an immigrant living in America? I can't remember much of that because I was really young. You were too young. Okay. I was too young. Thank you. Um, and I, I just also wanted to add that my mom was of that generation. She, she still has the singer in, in her home. Of course, she's too frail now uh, to, to use it. Um, but it was to make the additional funds. I mean, I can't stress enough the role of the union in the lives of these immigrant families. Um, it offered protections, right? Uh, and it also offered uh, health benefits. Which what do you are, mean by perfect protections? Well, protections, mean? I mean, against, you know, of course there were conditions, right, uh, that were not favorable, but they offered um, a measure of protection against unfavorable workplace mm -hmm. conditions right. of, of exploitation. Um, and, and so, but the health benefits were critical because, of course, Folks like my mom and her friends were married to men who did not have health benefits through their jobs, and they had kids, right? I'm one of three, so I have two older brothers. Um, and so uh, the Blue Cross, Blue Shield, I'm not going to translate what it is in, in our dialect, um, but I know it well. And it was really critical to the family well-being. I mean, just that's what it was. Do you have anything to add, Amy? Uh, yeah, I mean, similarly, um, that's how my mother had health insurance. Our family had health insurance. Um, but I mean, it. I mean, it, maybe this is more niche, but um, I don't know. The word union in Chinese was like a common term that we used in our family, more so than maybe other kind of uh, words. And I always associated it with something good. And um, it's kind of that basic fact that inspired me to apply to a labor school for college. Um, I knew, like, I mean, how many 18-year-olds know that the importance of a union, right? Um, and so, <laughs> and so, um, I think, yeah, the pre the presence of the union was just so, yeah, interesting. Like, um, I don't know, implicit in the family. And so it, it shaped my political consciousness um, in really interesting ways. And it was through going to school, I actually met May. <laughs> and um, uh, yeah, it kind of came full circle. Um, and the question that I kind of think about now is, um, you know, uh, yeah, like for the second gen, um, what kind of labor politics do we have um, mm -hmm. compared to our parents, right? Um, it kind of reminds me of this um, story and, um, you know that Studs Terkel working? Um, yeah, there was this story about um, 
him talking about a factory owner and him describing it and these guys with suits on and them, you know, making these changes to the factory. And in the end of the story, he says something like, oh, I hope my son's like that one day, which was just so strange. Um, so, yeah, I think about that a lot in terms of, like, the second gen and whether we have the same types of labor and political solidarity our mothers did. Yeah? Yeah, please. Now that I think about it, um, what the union brought for my family was, like, like they said, insurance. Um, I actually had a condition when I grew uh, when I was born. I was born with a cleft palate, so that helped me a lot. And um, right now, uh, the union actually pays my mom her retirement funds. Mm -hmm. It's it's quite substantial compared to a lot, a lot of other unions and stuff. And it's actually more than her uh, social security. So that's one of the benefits that she's reaping off right now. Sometimes she'll complain about the union dues and all, but <laughs> we all do. Right, right, right. So I think it's really extraordinary because typically uh, in, uh, among new immigrants who work in industries like garment or, um, you know, not in the mainstream economy, shall we say, um, unionization and, and the benefits that one gets with that is fairly uncommon. Um, so I think this is a, a legacy of the organizing of the ILGWU uh, in Chinatown, um, which actually is a continuation of a long history of organizing among immigrant women, especially, right, Jewish women, Italian women, then later Latinas and African Americans. And so you have this, um, the industry itself is built on successive generations of immigrants, right, and then because their children like you guys, right, aren't garment workers anymore. So there's a new group of immigrants who fills that labor need. And even today, I mean, the industry, obviously, we all know has shrunk a lot. You know, there's a lot of production that's no longer done in this country. But this legacy is really important, right, as your mom is still collecting those benefits. So I want to ask, I want to go back a little bit about the union. I mean, one of, I, you know, when I think about the strike in 1982, one of the things that really impresses me and impressed me then and continues to impress me now is the solidarity of the women and their understanding that they were not just striking for a few extra dollars, right, although they were, obviously, and the, and the contractors thought they could get away with refusing to sign the contract because they thought the women would just roll over um, and accept that. Um, so I think when they all went on strike together, it was the culmination of a kind of um, union culture that had been um, building and cultivated and generating for, for many years, right? And so it's not just the benefits the union had. Um, I mean, I remember the, the chorus, right? There was a Chinese... Um, uh, what was it called? It was Clue, right? The, the Coalition of Labor Union Women had a Chinese singing group, and they performed at events, um, and the union had other kinds of activities that brought people together around the other aspects of their lives, right? Having fun, entertainment, culture, but picnics, citizenship classes, you know, the whole nine yards. It was, a, you know, what people in the labor movement call social unionism, right? Not just bread and butter things, but social unionism, trying to build a consciousness and a movement. 
And so did any of your, did your parents take part in any of these activities? Was this part of their identity of being in the union? Like, I don't know if they sang in the chorus or if they went to classes or picnics or, you know. I don't remember any of these. Mm -hmm. uh, well, they, they're also working really hard, right? Because <laughs> uh, by that time, my sister was an infant Mm. And I was I was just born by the time, so I'm not sure they had the time to do all these activities. We were both really, really young. So from my understanding, um, from my memories, I don't remember her going to a lot of these events, maybe mm -hmm. once or twice. Okay. Yeah, same here. I mean, I think, I think the union was definitely very important in our lives um, collectively. But I, and I mentioned this to, to May when we spoke on the phone um, to prep. Um, but my recollection really is about these just these powerful bonds, these social, almost familial bonds mm -hmm. amongst the women, right? In a very, uh, let's just own it, patriarchal culture. Um, and so to have independence, um, mm -hmm. to have their own earnings, um, was huge, um, and and to share the knowledge, like my grandmother, who is my mom's, my dad's mom, so my mom's mother-in-law, she worked fewer decades in the garment factory, but she knew no English, I mean, at all. Um, and so, but she wanted to send some of her earnings as remittances back to family in China, and grandpa wasn't into that. And so, so she shared that with my mom, and my mom said, well, why don't you open your own bank account? And she was wow, like, right. what's that? How do I do that? And so my mom said, well, then let's just go do it. Right? I mean, you think that's the type of thing that's just so powerful. Um, you can call it collective action. You can just call it collective bonds. Yeah, I think the bonds is, is really powerful. Yeah, Amy? Yeah, um... Uh, well, I think um, my mother is a home care worker now, and I, I think the union helped with, you know, a little bit of training in that respect. Also, she learned how to use a computer through um, a union classes. She was, like, very bad at it, and I had to also reteach her. Um, but it's that, okay. <laughs> that was um, really... Um, useful and it showed me that the union was really on the pulse of the political economy um, but socially I think I don't know the run-ins in Chinatown right where you know they're they see their friends who they were in the factory with and they're yelling and saying they have to go but the conversation continues and you're kind of waiting and um, I, I was thinking about those memories, and I, I kind of wonder when... I, I assume they think those run-ins would happen forever, and then sometimes mm. I, I just wonder, um, when do you think it was that was going to be the, your last run-in, right? Things get busy, people move away. Um, but I could tell that that was kind of yeah, a site for you know friendship and social bonds, yeah. So the last uh, question I want to ask each of you before we open it up for um, questions from the audience and comments um, is uh, I'm really moved by you talking about your moms, you know, the independence um, and the social networks and friendships that they had with the women they worked with. This is, to me, so moving and important because 
We think of immigrant women who come to the United States and are isolated, right, from the rest of society. They're often mostly working in the home, right, raising children. Um, so for women, especially, to have their own livelihood, to have friendships that are like, you know, they become your aunties, right? Your IE, right? Um, that's, that makes, that's what a community, I think that makes a community. So even if people don't physically live in Chinatown the whole time, they move away, they, they keep those bonds. Um, so I think for, for working people, I think that exists wherever people work, right? People make friends with the people they work with and in their communities. But outsiders don't often see that, right? So, so I want to, um, my last round of questions has to do with how, how, you talked about this a little bit, Amy, about going to uh, study in the uh, labor relations school, but I want to know more about like how your mothers were role models for you. Um, and how did that affect your coming of age as as a female, right? And then for Donald also, would it? How did how did your? I mean, I think you know strong. No, I think strong mothers are also important for their sons, right? I work in the women's industry. No, but no, no, no. But uh, but my point is that for for uh, strong mothers are also really important for boys. Right? Not just for the girls. So I think it's a different dynamic. But anyway, just maybe you can share with us a little bit how that shaped your life, both in terms of the work that you went into, but also how you look at yourself and your family. Um, I can start. Um, I think politically, um, learning about the strike in school um, really changed the way I looked at my mother. She was a political actor. She was not a guest, a conditional guest in this place anymore. And when I think more deeply about it, the strike was for the future of their children in this country. And so I think it was making a really important statement about perhaps the temporality of their um, place in this country, um, and they're kind of making a statement about it um, now. Um, yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's so maybe unconscious around the ways in which um, my mothers and grandmothers um, work in, well, um, part in the union um, was. But I was just kind of thinking back, you know, my grandmother and my mother never went to any PTA meeting I ever had in growing up in elementary school. But um, during the you know end of the whole like end of the year or end of school year, you know, um, other students um, they gave their parents gave my teacher um, like a card or chocolate, um, and my my mother gave my teachers a matching skirt suit. <laughs> Um, that, you know, came from uh, the factory. And I, I always thought that was a little strange, right? But, you know, it was, it was a way, it was resourceful. Um, again, I wasn't the best student, so maybe it really did help out. Um, so, but it's, um, yeah, I thought, it again, it appeared in really interesting ways. And I do think she modeled, both my grandmother and my mother modeled what it means 
how to treat other people uh, regardless of what kind of work they do um, with dignity and respect. What a great story. Um, so I just have a, yeah, I have a couple of reflections. I mean, when I think that my mom really, her experiences taught me, again, it's about respect, right? Um, you know, my mom is functionally illiterate in English, um, so it's hard for her. Um, she knew more than my grandmother did, but that wasn't saying much. Um, but yet she's literate in her own language, right? Um, but to see how she cannot advocate for herself has been hard, especially especially she's gotten older, right, uh, with aging. Um, but I think also she taught me that it doesn't matter what you do for a living or how much education you have or don't have, right? And she also taught me that immigration, I mean, we all know this, is all around us. I teach a class in immigration, and I always open with my students that immigration is all around us in ways that you're not even aware of, right? It's who makes my clothing. It's who, you know, um, who built the computers that we use, who serve us the food, who grow us the food. Um, and I really learned that from my mom, not through anything that she said to me explicitly, but how she chose to live her life. Um, and I also learned independence. Uh, I learned, perhaps this is not the most politically correct thing to say, but I will say it. I learned never to depend on a man. I learned that... Here, here. <laughs> <laughs> I learned I, that she, the only person I can depend on is myself. Mm -hmm. But also to be kind to other people um, and, and to recognize that they may have other things going on in their life. Um, anyway. So. Thank you. Donald, do you want to add something? Well, my mom showed me a lot of different things. And throughout my life, she's always taught my sister and I, um, you see me. I'm working very hard for you guys. And I did this for you guys. One thing I always want you to get is an education. And um, she forced us, or not forced, she pushed us <laughs> to, to, to do well. Um, she never hit us. She never yelled at us. And uh, she always used her words to talk to us. And um, she showed us that, you know, you have to be persistent. Uh, you have to have your integrity. You have to show that you can do it by yourself. Um, and that's what she showed me. Uh, and throughout uh, my elementary years, she went to all my PT, uh, PT, uh, parent conference. Uh, she made sure she understood through translation from my sister that uh, what was I struggling in. And she always made extra money for me to get tutored. Mm -hmm. And that's what she wanted us to do, to just live a better life than she had. She didn't want us to work overnight. She didn't want us to work hard labor. And um, she didn't really want us to go through what she wants to do, immigrating here as a literate. Uh, and quite frankly, the union taught her that, no, taught her that she could do things herself. She's taught us to do that. And that's what she showed an example of. Great. Thank you. So. Three of you are exemplars of the garment families, right? Two professors and a teacher. Let's give them all a round of applause. <laughs> there are people in the audience that want to ask questions or comments. If you have a story to share, we'd love to hear it. Um, Susan? Um, so 
I was a staffer at 2325 during the strike along with May. Um, so listening to you is, is very moving to me to think about So, and I think it's important that the demand for the daycare center came directly after the strike. And it came, I think some of you know Katie Kwan, who was working uh, in a shop, in a big shop that was important in the strike, so it was large. Um, she was an activist. Uh, she was working because she was an activist and wanted to work in office. Played a, a really important role. And so, once the strike won, she started a petition in the shops, and she got hundreds of workers to sign a petition. And she brought it to the manager of the local, and I was his assistant. And he said, so he said to me, what am I going to do? Katie is so critical to this. I don't have to start a daycare center, but we have to do something. And at the same time, the union was under a lot of pressure because, you know, the children were in the factories, and the union was criticizing that. The ILG had bought job labor in the early 20th century, but we also knew that children were there really in large part because they had no danger, not because the mothers wanted them to, them to turn out peaceful. So uh, I and uh, Mustafa Chisti, who went on to head the immigration project, which also was a demand that came from the workers. Mm -hmm. You know, we were like, what are we going to do? We had to come up with money, we got to sell out the industry, we went to the city, we got some out of the city. Um, and it was a great thing, and we had an enormous waiting list. We did a lottery every year because there was so much demand. I mean, it really was just a little bit of the demand, but I just think it's important that, um, that because of the strike, the workers articulated demands, particularly around childcare, but also around immigration, that the union had to respond to because the strike had been successful. And then there was this whole group of activists, Katie and Nave, and a whole group of women who came out of the shops and went on staff, who were just amazing activists in, in the union and in the community. Right, right. So the strike really empowered women that they could keep fighting for their needs, right? That's wonderful. Yeah, and win, yeah. Alice? So there's two questions there. One is, what was the language at home? There's two questions. What was the language at home? That's one question. And the other question was, how did the union deal with the language question? But also, how did you handle the interaction between the home and the outside? So, so from my understanding, the union also had translators. So they were English-speaking Chinese people there to help translate and organize everything together. Um, at home, I spoke only Chinese because my mom was literate completely. She didn't speak English. I mean, she didn't read or write English or Chinese. Mm -hmm. My dad was only had a second grade reading level in Chinese only, and he was illiterate in English. So we only had to, we were 
asked to speak only in Chinese. Since I grew up in Chinatown, most of the students that I went to at school spoke Chinese as well, so it was easy to assimilate. Um, quite frankly, my daycare center was 100% Chinese. My elementary school was 95% Chinese when I was growing up. So um, uh, I also went to one of the newer Chinese schools where there was a lot of immigrants there. Uh, so quite frankly, uh, you can't say there was not assimilation to American culture, but um, it was a lot easier to assimilate to American culture when 95% of people were just like you with the same similar background. From translation standpoint, uh, you just have to learn the code switch between your parents and uh, whoever you're translating for, and right, right. It, it's really tough. When you, but after a while, you get used to it. You get used to some of the lingo. And quite frankly, my sister and I were forced to speak and translate since we're first and second grade. Right, right. That's very common, right, in immigrant families. The kids are the ones who help their parents negotiate. Everything. Landlords, bill, yeah. paying bills, lawyers. My, my landlords are Chinese, so it's a lot easier for that. <laughs> but it was mainly when we went uptown to the right. hospitals, right. Exactly. Uh, when you go somewhere else. Can I add on to that really quick? Yeah, I think having, again, similarly, my mother doesn't speak English, um, barely finished elementary school, um, and uh, as her child, I was forced to be her advocate and translator. Um, but that's what made learning about the strike so important for me, because all I knew was being me being the advocate and me being the translator. And so actually knowing that there's this history where she made political, or, and my grandmother made these demands, really changed the way I saw my mother in a deep way. I don't know if that... I can really convey the extent of that, what that really means. But, um, yeah, did you want right, to... Because when ch the children of immigrants have to act as the translator and the advocate, it's a role reversal. Right. Right, and, and the parent becomes infantilized, right? And, and the child has to bear the burden of acting like an adult. And so when the union comes into the picture and your mother and your grandmother are in with their peers... Right. Right, then you can be the child again, right? Yeah. Or I mean, they, then you can see them as full adults. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And political beings. Political. Yeah, I just wanted to add that um, I do remember that in the factory or the first factory my mom worked in, there was a union rep. Um, she was Chinese American, also a Chinese immigrant, but she was proficient in English. And so that really made a huge difference. And then we also had another family member who also came later on um, and became a union rep, right? And so I think that those were huge opportunities. But I also think that, you know, public schools have a, a journey in terms of working with immigrant children, even today. Right. Uh, I mean, when I was in school in the uh, in the second grade, they thought I had a, a learning. Well, they thought I had a hearing impairment, uh, and it, that wasn't the case. It was just that my mom and I spoke entirely in Chinese, and so I didn't respond when people spoke to me in English in the classroom. Um, so, the, having that kind of expertise is needed as well. Right. Right. And I think, to the union's credit, the union hired increasingly more. Um, greater numbers of staff who, could, who are bilingual. Yeah.
early evenings for the house, where these plans were developed. I'm sure it had to be in some way where in some way the beginning happens not. Yeah, how did the organizing take place? Where were the meetings? Where were the... Were there community centers, for instance, like the Chinese Benevolent Societies that helped to learn? Not them. Do you want to answer? Or do May, do you want to... May Chen, do you want to... Is it you weren't in the... If you weren't in the CCBA, where were you organizing the workers? The establishment of CPC was a big advance for Chinatown because they set up a lot of community programs. That's the Chi uh, Chinatown Planning Council, big social service agency, right? Yeah, they had um, doctor school programs and whatnot. Um, we actually, as a union, we often rented space in Chinatown, which was a, kind of a satellite office for the union. And we were able to use Transfiguration Church, mm -hmm. which is the Catholic church on Mott Street. Um, the uh, priest there, who was uh, Italian, flew Cantonese because he had lived in Hong Kong. And we had a lot of union members who belonged to the church. And so they were able to get the church to let us use. And in fact, what our first English program was in the classrooms of the parochial school. We used those classrooms at night. And in the English program, we actually had an opportunity to have a lot of workers together. And so they would often bring their concerns and their questions and things like that. And that was kind of a safe space where we could talk to people and people manage each other. So things like that. And then, uh, of course, in the tea houses, the markets, the places in Chinatown okay. where women gather. Forgive my ignorance, but why all the laughter? Why is the CCPA? <laughs> well, <laughs> the is, is historically a very patriarchal and male-dominated organization. And they were like the, um, you could say, the government of Chinatown. But it was in the time, as May was saying, of the soldiers, where most of the people in Chinatown were men. And they actually did not allow women into any of the governing bodies of these groups. I, I think maybe today, but back in that day, after 1982, they started to form women's committees in those village and traditional organizations. So, um, so that's why we're laughing. I mean, we, we had to, I remember several times with them, like, I don't know, Susan, everyone on these meetings, we had to go and pay our respects to the CCPA and sit down and talk to them. And they, they only wanted to talk to uh, Jay Mazur or the men in the union. And those, you know, the women, like when we went with the Chinese food committee, they really didn't want to see, they, they really didn't want women to speak up because they wanted women to be in their place. Right, right. And they tended to be very politically conservative. Um, you know, not the idea of a labor strike is something that doesn't really speak to their, their interests. Right. Huh? Troublemakers. troublemakers, troublemakers, communists, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Eva? 
I mean, I, I think we'll make and add more to this, but the, the nature of the industry is that um, it's a kind of ethnic uh, structure where the big manufacturers contract out jobs to contractors, and the contractors are from the same community, and often they hire their relatives or people from their hometowns. So there's ties between owners, contractors, and workers, but also conflicting interests, right? And I think for, um, I mean, Donald talked about his parents owning a shop for a short time. I mean, it's a, for an immigrant entrepreneur, um, it's a relatively easy business to go into because it's kind of a low threshold, low capital threshold to, to you know, buy the machines and, to, and then they, you know, it ends up being a very difficult situation because they bid lower and lower to get the jobs and then they don't have money to pay the workers. But this is, um, this is a characteristic, right, of the industry where often where the bosses, the immediate bosses, are from the same ethnic group and might even be a relative of, of the worker or some of the workers, right? But, you know, uh, well, yeah. Yeah, I need to say not every employer opposes the union. I think it was their leadership committee. It was like a committee, yeah, right? No, there were five or six hundred factories, and I think a third of them really supported signing the union contract because they got most of their work from union manufacturers. And then there was this kind of maybe another third that decided they wanted to take on the union and fight. And then the, the last third was just sitting there waiting to see what would happen. So after those big strikes, I think most of these employers realized that you know, they weren't going to get rid of the union, so they might as well settle. Right. And they wanted to go back to work. They, the factories wanted to Right, right. Angela? Yeah, I'm also kind of curious because the garment industry is also the backdrop of like Chinatown and like a lot of the different um, interethnic conflicts. So I'm kind of curious, like within the garment industry, where there are like things between like people who were from Guangzhou or people who were from like Fuzhou, like different regions of Chinatown, or even things between like people who had citizenship or not, or not citizens. So I think that was, I mean, that's a great question, and I'll, I'll defer to my, um, my panelists. I, I did want to say that th at the time that I was growing up, uh, it was much earlier. So there wasn't so much of that conflict, right? It was before the large-scale immigration from Fujian. Um, so, right. I mean, what I do want to echo is what May has already shared, but I have the mic, so, <laughs> so, it's, so uh, I just want to echo it again, is uh, just the incredible impact of organizations like CPC, the Charles B. Wang, you know, um, community health clinic, and just the activism that it took the basement workshop for artists. Um, and that was kind of steeped in my family in ways that I didn't even know. Like my brother and his wife met in the basement workshop, as it turns out, and I just found out by accident. Um, you know, my, my uncle and his friends were big, lead, you know, big participants. 
um, in CPC and in fighting for the community health clinic. I mean, those are things that we, we take it for granted now, perhaps, um, but that didn't exist when I was very young. It had to be built. Well, well going back into the, 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 the different regions, my understanding in the early 80s, there wasn't much difference in regions because a lot of families came from the same area. Either they come from Hong Kong or they came from Taishan, Canton, mm -hmm. those are major areas. As time went by through the 90s, more immigrants come in, they were mixed, they were mixed in, um, but they had their own social cliques within the factories, from my understanding. So they worked together, but they had their own social cliques within their own uh, village. And as time went by, they, they had to mingle with each other because there, weren't, there wasn't a lot of factories left over. And that's how um, it went from a, a separate, uh, um, segregated community into more of a community, communal uh, gathering, social gathering, towards the end of um, the factory industry. Okay, thank you. Anybody else? Okay, so let's give our panelists a big and I'd like to invite Treya Lamb back up to the stage to perform Dawn. Dawn is from their debut album, right? This Joy. So Treya sings with the Resistance Revival Chorus. Uh, if you don't know, they are like a new generation Sweet Honey in the Rock. They were formed uh, during the Women's March and have been singing uh, at demonstrations and actions uh, around town or around the country ever since. And so um, uh, I'm, I'm so happy and proud that, that um, I can work with Treya in this way. I met Treya through Nobuko Miyamoto a few years ago, um, the grain of sand singer activist. And in true kind of Yuri Kochiyama fashion, she was like, you, you, you need to know each other. You need to work together. And so a few years ago, here we are. Um, yeah, this is one of Trey's songs. Um, like I said in the beginning, please sing along. <laughs> right? Right? This is how this, this, this movement stuff gets done. Oh, oh, oh. Well, hold on. 
protest music alive and well. Um, thank you all for coming tonight. It was um, so happy that you are here to share um, the stories with um, our guests and to enjoy the music from um, our guests. So thank you for coming. Um, if you didn't sign up on our uh, outside, you know, you if you want to be on Caesar's um, mailing list, um, please uh, sign up on the table outside. So thank you. Have a good evening. Get home safely.